one of the big things, and I don't know if you remember this, but like once you graduated, um, you would call pretty often when you were having, you know, that 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 cross country trip, mm-hmm. and some pretty concerning voicemails. Did uh, and okay. I remember being very concerned for your your well being and your safety. You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. Welcome to Bipolar Recorder. My name is Hunter Keegan. Thanks for joining us today. In 2011, I was starting my bachelor's degree in psychology at Penn State University, and I met a young woman there named Brooke. Brooke was also a psychology student, and we struck up a friendship. Twelve years passed, and now Brooke is a social worker in Pennsylvania. She does extensive work with people who have suffered intense trauma, and I invited her on the show to talk about trauma therapy and trauma recovery. Throughout the installment, Brooke discusses what she does as a social worker and how she provides counseling services to her clients. We also discuss a bit about our college experience together and what it was like to know me before I was officially diagnosed as bipolar. Today's installment has some important content warnings. While the conversation does not get too graphic, it does contain subject matter related to self-harm, sexual assault, and domestic violence. Also, for continuity purposes, I would like to note that this episode was recorded about one week prior to my crisis incident in late November, And I discussed this on episode 29. So again, just mentioning this for continuity purposes, if you haven't listened to episode 29, definitely check that one out. All right, let's go ahead and hear from Brooke. Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by Miss Brooke, a licensed clinical social worker, also known as an LCSW in the state of Pennsylvania. She is a certified trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapist and also a certified clinical trauma professional. Brooke and I actually go back many years, all the way back to 2011, as a matter of fact, when we were both starting the first semester of our bachelor's degrees at Penn State University. We were both enrolled in psychology bachelor's programs there, and we actually had a few classes together, as well as living in the same dorm for a year. (laughs) So we knew each other super well. And when I learned where Brooke had gotten to today working as an LCSW, I knew that I wanted to get her on the show. So Brooke, I just wanted to turn it over to you for one moment and ask, how are you doing today? I'm so excited (laughs) to have you. Yes, thanks, Hunter. No, I'm super excited. It's so wild to see where we're at now versus where we were 
over a decade ago. Um, so yeah. I'm doing well today. Um, I'm here at my home office um, and I'm just excited to be on here with you. Before we started recording, I was commenting on uh, the home office that Brooke is broadcasting from. It, it's so professional looking. She's got her home therapy set up. It's like incredible to talk to her in this context, as opposed to at a party at two in the morning or something. It's so funny. Yes, but... at the Meridian. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Could you tell us just a little bit about your background, like where you're originally from? How how old are you, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, so I um, am from Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, so right outside Harrisburg. Um, my family's lived here for quite a little bit. My family was military before I was born, so my siblings, my family's lived all over, but I've grown up here, and this is end up where I ended up staying, which I was kind of surprised about. Um, so I am 30, um, and I have my um, bachelor's degree in psychology and my master's degree in social work. That's so cool. And I have to ask, what made you decide to come on the show when I, when I asked you? Well, I think it was more the fact that you asked. Um, so I'm always, you know, uh, willing to try something new, try something different. Um, and then I was just really excited for you, whatever you said that Dr. Weimer, you know, was on the podcast as well. Mm -hmm. uh, just I don't know. It felt like that would be a fun thing to be a part of. Oh, that's so cool. And for people who are still getting caught up on the show, Dr. Weimer was one of our professors. He taught an advanced abnormal psych course that Brooke and I were both enrolled in. And he was actually on the show uh, quite recently. And he remembered Brooke very well, <laughs> too, which I guess just goes to show that Brooke can really make an impression. And that's Aww, amazing. Oh, <laughs> isn't that nice? So um, let me ask you this. How long have you been working as a social worker technically now? Technically, um, I've had my degree since 2017. Okay. Um, so there's been different areas and, you know, parts of my life where I have worked in a role similar to that, but actually being with the title of social worker has been since 2017. Um, yeah. So I have um, primarily worked in victim services. Um, so when I'm saying victim services, I mean, at a county level, um, trauma-based counseling for folks who've experienced sexual violence, domestic violence, human trafficking, survivors of homicide, um, pretty much anything that is a violent crime. That's where really my big focus has been. Survivors of like family members of victims of homicide? Mm, yes, yeah. Okay, yeah. got it. Got it. Okay. And so on a very broad level, obviously everything you said just covers a wide spectrum. So on a very broad level, how could the average person think of a social worker as they fit into uh, community mental health treatment or individual treating individuals? Yeah. So social work is such a broad term. So you, um, in the social work field, you can truly do just about anything. Mm -hmm. um, so I have some colleagues who um, are are working in lobbying, you know, of getting, you know, laws kind of pushed through um, that are bettering social welfare, um, protecting victims of violent crime, different things like that. You know, folks who work in community-based mental health, um, people who are working in schools, who are working in the prison system. Um, it can truly be just about anywhere that you think of. Um, also gerontology, so working in hospice, social work, um, within nursing homes, um, in the hospitals. I'm sure there are areas that I'm missing, but you can truly be um, just about anything because our degree 
degrees are really usually a generalist practice. So instead of just focusing on therapy, we also focus on community pieces and that macro level um, of, of community work. So it's really broad. That's a really broad answer. <laughs> no, I, I think it makes sense though. I, I mean, like we were saying, it covers an entire spectrum. Uh, I worked for county social services uh, for a little bit, uh, actually for a couple of years, right when I was out of college. And so the type of work I was doing had to do with helping people find jobs because they were facing major barriers like mental illness or criminal records or things like that. So yeah, it definitely takes all different forms, very wide spanning field. But you've done a lot of work that specifically pertains to trauma therapy for victims of violent crime. And I was wondering, what does that specifically consist of? So again, I feel like this is going to end up being a really broad question or a really broad answer. Um, but the big part um, when I'm doing trauma counseling, um, when I was in victim services, and now I'm in a private practice. So I, I kind of use the term <clears throat> that I'm using doing trauma therapy. Um, mm -hmm. So at that county level, it can get a little dicey of how we're funded and what we're calling things. Um, so at that at community level, we were doing trauma counseling. And the big piece of that um, is always going back to um, safety and choice. Um, so as a counselor, as an advocate, we always want to think, oh, I'm going to create safety. I'm going to create safety. We, we don't get to decide that. Um, the people that we're serving, they get to decide what is safe for them, what does safety look like. Um, so a big part of what I would do is just create options for choice. So whenever I would bring people into my office, I would always explain, and, and it might have sounded a little bit extreme, literally everything that we were going to be doing. So I would explain, here's the paperwork that you're going to fill out. Here's about how long it's going to take you to fill out that paperwork. While you're filling that out, this is where I'm going to go. And in about 10 minutes, I'm going to come back and check in on you. If you're ready at that point, we're going to go up the stairs into my office. If you're not ready, I'm going to give you another few minutes. So it would be pretty, pretty extensive details. Once we got there, and obviously this is too, if someone was able to go up the stairs, if they were not able to go up the stairs, we had a different office that we would work in. But I would say the stairs we're going to go up are really creaky. They're going to make a lot of noise while we go up them. Mm -hmm other offices upstairs. So we might hear some noise from some of the other counselors and some other clients that you see in here. You know, so it would be every single step of what we were doing would be explained. When we get in my office, I let them know, you can sit anywhere that feels comfortable for you. Um, mm -hmm. And I truly meant that. So sometimes, especially some of my kiddos would then sit in my like swivel chair. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and I had to accept that. I said, yes, you can sit wherever it feels comfortable for you. If that's where they picked, that's where they picked. I'd always let them know, too, that the door that we you know, are closing is locked. So they can always exit out, but no one can come in while wow. we're there. Um, so it would be it would be a pretty, <laughs> pretty intensive explanation of what everything is. Um, but so many of my clients appreciated that of knowing what was happening, what was going on in this space. Um, you know, and we were also pretty close to a hospital. So I'd let them know we might be hearing some ambulances going by. Mm -hmm. uh, As you were speaking, I was just like, oh my gosh, that is so cool. Because, and let me ask you this, do some of the people who you work with, like, might they be experiencing like active episodes of some kind? Yeah. And one of the almost kind of pieces with, you know, when we're looking at PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, mm -hmm. I very rarely work with someone who is in the post space. Um, mm -hmm. So many 
going through ongoing trauma, Um, that the person who's hurt them is still out there. The violence is still occurring to them. Mm -hmm. And so to try to find ways to allow them to know what what might be safe in this moment is really helpful, pulling back that control um, to them, of giving them those options and choices to know what's going on. So what also really speaks to me about that, though, is so as someone who's had psychotic episodes and has been through those intake situations and then, you know, subsequently even taken to extremes where I've been in psychiatric wards and stuff, one of the number one things that really freaked me out during those moments was that I did not know what was going on. And for me, if I'm experiencing psychosis and breaks from reality, it can be so disorienting and scary that if someone is trying to speak to me in any way that's even remotely ambiguous, it triggers me, it makes me paranoid, and it makes me distrustful. So to someone who may not have experienced that, it might sound kind of silly, like, oh, I'll be back in 10 minutes, the stairs might be creaky. But I actually, like for me personally, I would love that if I was experiencing symptoms of something and I was going to meet with someone for the very first time, that would make me feel very comforted, very um, in control as well. Just like you were saying, having those options and understanding what's happening around you. I think that's absolutely huge. So I love that you emphasize that so much. Yeah, and I think a lot of times too, as therapists, as counselors, as social workers, you know, whatever our specific title is, we often forget that we do this all the time. And the people that we're seeing, they don't, you know, that this might be their first time ever being in this situation or experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's always so important to, I don't want to use the word coach, but almost teach of this is, this is what therapy might look like. Mm -hmm. Um, So I always also tell, this is about how long our session is going to be. Mm -hmm. Usually, you know, we're going to meet for about an hour. Once we hit that 55 minute mark, though, I'm going to start to pause us and bring us back up, you know, and especially if we're doing deeper trauma work at that 50 minute mark, we're going to pause to come back up and we're going to spend the end of our session doing some housekeeping, checking in with, you know, when we want to schedule next, if there's anything you need before we end today. Um, So kind of giving that structure of what a session might look like. Also, when I'm doing intakes with folks, I always give a reason of why I'm asking the questions I'm asking because mm-hmm. they are pretty invasive. Um, yes. To be asking things, yes. you know, about your, you know, medical history, things about your family history, about um, self-harming behavior, about suicide attempts, about drug or alcohol use. Those are tough things to answer or share to anybody, let alone a stranger. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always give the piece of I'm getting this for so that way I know a baseline of where your safety is at right now. That mm-hmm. if it is not typical for you to be drinking, then then that's important for me to know. So that way, if you're sharing later, oh, I went out to the bar with so-and-so, I know to check in of, hey, you, you shared before that you normally don't drink. What was going on here? Is that something that you're concerned about? Or if we have someone who has a pretty steady baseline of, yeah, I typically self-harm at least, you know, once a week. And it's, it's generally, you know... Um, not to cause permanent harm or injury. It's it's my coping skills, my relief. That's helpful for me to know that if we start to increase how often we're self-harming or what Mm. self-harm has changed. So it's never from a place of judgment, but it's more from a place of getting a baseline. Yeah, absolutely. Finding ways to facilitate that like optimal therapeutic experience by 
really connecting with people and establishing where they're at, you know, and it's unfortunate because a lot of clinicians who I've directly worked with in the past don't really do that so much. <laughs> and that can be problematic. So again, like I just I love the transparency. I, I like the structure. I'm I'm the type of person who really likes structure. So I, I think that's great. Now, of course, what works for me may not work for someone else. And that's totally okay. You know, Brooks style might be different from another social worker's style. And that's all right. Something that I've been talking about on the show lately is also, when possible, finding someone who you have a good personality fit with, you know, like someone who you can really click with. Uh, something that's important for me is like, I really need to work with someone who I intrinsically respect and appreciate because that makes the rapport just so much more meaningful and and helpful and i'm very fortunate that i've been able to find a provider like that uh within the last couple of years anyhow coming back to you i noticed that on the resume that you sent over to me uh because i always like my professional guests to send a <laughs> resume so i can like check it out and see what they've been up to but you emphasize uh, cognitive behavioral therapy a lot, and that's something that comes up in this show quite frequently. But we have yet to have a good, succinct breakdown on what CBT is. And I was wondering if just on a very basic level, you might be able to explain that for the audience. So I, I will answer that. And I want to give the caveat that CBT is not for everybody. Sure. And it is not a and I'll be all of therapy. So I, I think in some instances, it's really helpful for a lot of the clients I work with. It's also what gets really pushed a lot for certifications. So, you know, you can get a certification in that, and that's generally respected and well-received um, without getting too into it, that that's something that insurance companies will approve of. Um, so it's not the end all be all only treatment but it can be helpful for some people. Um, so big breakdown of that is basically, you know, we are, by changing our thoughts, you know, we can change our behaviors. So I always think of the, and, and anybody who, you know, has done CBT treatment before has probably seen the triangle, you know, so we have this um, experience, we have a thought about it and our kind of reaction to it. So if we walk into a room and all of a sudden people are laughing, if uh -huh. our automatic thought is they're laughing at me, uh -huh. feel embarrassed, we feel distressful, we might even feel angry, you know, we're rejected. So what is our action then? We leave the room. We don't talk to those people anymore. We don't go back into the room. But if we walk into a room and people are laughing and instead we, we choose, <laughs> you know, because it is about choice, we choose to think they must have told a funny joke. We might now feel interested, curious, open. What is our action now? Maybe we're going to walk up and talk to them, or at least we're going to stay in the room or choose that next time we will go in that room again. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's this piece of if we can start to change some of our thoughts mm -hmm. and that automatic thought still might come up. The automatic thought still might be they're making fun of me and we're challenging that thought with, but what if they're not? Right. And when we're able to challenge some of those thoughts, we might have a different emotional response in that moment. And then we might have a different behavioral action afterwards. 
Yeah, it, it's really, I, I mean, it's literally cognitive reprogramming. Just using myself as an example, I've had issues with OCD and doing cognitive behavioral therapy with my therapist was really instrumental in helping with that because I started getting to a point where when I started having these weird intrusive thoughts, it was almost like subconsciously I got to the point working at it for a very long time you know this took like a year of work but i got to the point where i could just like almost like you know anticipate and immediately disregard and move on and keep focusing on whatever i had to do for the rest of the day and so stuff like that is really helpful um or at least it has been for me so what are some examples when cbt may not be a good idea for some people? So I think when I pull back to trauma, one of the toughest things is if the trauma is still occurring. You know, mm-hmm. so if, you know, I'm working with someone, so I'll first give the example of someone who maybe it would be helpful or successful with. So if I'm working with someone who had a one-time traumatic experience that, you know, someone sexually assaulted them, um, and obviously that is traumatic, obviously that has had an impact on them. And now that person has no access to them anymore. So that person is no longer able to sexually assault them. That person is no longer able to threaten them, cause violence to them. If they are continuing to have thoughts of that person is is out to get me, that person is still going to be here. That person's in my room right now. We're able to use some of that CBT to challenge some of those thoughts, you know, of, okay, that's my fear. That's not actually what's occurring right now. You can almost put that thought on trial of where's the evidence that that person is here. Where is the evidence that that is happening right now? However, if I'm working with someone who's in a domestic violence relationship and they are currently experiencing that interpersonal violence, that us trying to challenge those thoughts of they're going to come home and hurt me. Mm-hmm. That they're right. It's they're like, right. yeah, that probably is going to happen. And yeah. so using CBT in that moment is not particularly helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, if the threat is real. You got to fucking protect yourself. That's so, you know, domestic violence is obviously a massive issue that doesn't get talked about enough. And it comes up on the show from time to time. And it it really, I I mean, I just, I fucking, (laughs) this is going to sound like bullshit virtue signaling. I can never imagine being in a circumstance where I would want to physically attack a romantic partner or really anybody what should victims of domestic violence who are actively going through those experiences, like what kind of resources should they be looking for to to start maybe breaking that cycle? Yeah. Well, I think knowing that unfortunately everybody's situation is so different. Yeah. And I always pull it back to the folks I'm working with that they know their life best. They know what's going on best. And so having those outside perspectives can be helpful to start to challenge some of the things that are going on. Like a lot of people don't always realize that they're in an abusive relationship until Mm -hmm. someone comes out. That's not okay. Yeah. That that is not safe what's happening. But more of what I'm talking about when they know their situation best is they, they know the safety situation best, I guess is more of what I mean. So there are so many resources. I don't think enough, but there are so many resources out there. In Pennsylvania, you know, we have PCEDV, which is the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And that is not a like a direct service um, uh, 
agency that is the funding source for all the county level agencies. Um, so in the United States, every single county has access to some form of victim services um, agency. So some counties might have to share one. It might be a little bit of a travel. Um, but anyone who's experienced domestic violence or sexual assault um, does have access and does have a right to free services through a county level agency. Um, so that is probably one of the, the most ideal places to start is to call that 1-800 number, is, is to call and get connected even if it's just to talk, that you don't have to take any further steps, you don't have to do anything after that, but at least to talk to someone that that's always an option. Um, there are shelters, there are counseling services, there are transitional housing, there are legal services that do exist. Um, there is just unfortunately such a shortage of them. Yeah. Um, that there are, it's, there is oftentimes lack of funding, there's lack of staffing, um, and that can make it really tough. But though they, they do exist, those resources are out there. Um, yeah. But tell, you know, everybody that I work with who's been in an intimate partner violent or domestic violence situation is if you feel unsafe, you are. Yeah. And and I know that sounds intense and I know that sounds scary. Um, but if you think that person is going to hurt you, they are going to hurt you. Yeah like really trusting your intuition and that gut response. It's like sometimes first impressions are are true, are very real. And that's something that I've been learning over the years is really to trust that intuition if I'm feeling unsafe. You mentioned something really, really important that I think happens to a lot of people, which is that they may not realize actively that they're experiencing domestic violence what are some signs that a person may be in an abusive relationship? So I think the the biggest piece is power and control. You know, so if you are never getting the option to make choices for yourself, mm -hmm. if you have a say in the relationship, that's definitely a concern. Um, you know, if there's isolation, that's starting to happen. So not getting to talk to people that you're close with, um, you know, of there being a limitation of who you spend time with. Um, another one, really big one is respect. So is this person respectful towards you and the things that you value? Um, is this person talking badly to you, you know, or being condescending or downplaying the things that you find um, you know, is there a lot of distrust within the relationship? So is this person being honest? Are they being truthful with their word? Um, that all of those things, you know, are kind of those, I call them the pink flags, you know, mm -hmm. so those, those are getting us ready of, hey, there's some red flags here. Yeah. Because we can be in unhealthy relationships that are not necessarily abusive. Mm -hmm. um, those things are all parts of unhealthy relationships, but that abuse is kind of taking it to that, that next level or that next step. And it, it escalates too, right? It's like oftentimes this, this partner may be love bombing the, the other person in the relationship and it starts out great. And then all of a sudden these pink flags start creeping in and they become red flags and it can become extremely dangerous. So thank you for sharing that. I think it's really important for us to try to all be actively aware of situations like that because it's not like on tv where oh this crazy thing just happened and now this is what the impact was it, it's much more nefarious and nuanced than that well 
Well, and even just that, that nuance to it. So I always, my my clients know, I always give analogies and sometimes they make sense and sometimes they don't. <laughs> but one of the ones I always use, and I always start it off with, I'm not saying that you're a frog, but, <laughs> you know, of if you would put a frog in a boiling pot of water, it's going to jump out right away. Mm-hmm. And, but if we put a frog in a room temperature pot of water, it'll sit there. And as we slowly turn the temperature up, its body adjusts. Mm-hmm. Amphibian, it adjusts to the temperature. It adjusts to the temperature until the frog is sitting in a boiling pot of water. Yeah. And abuse is really similar to that. Is for the most part, and I get that there is exceptions. If someone came in, you know, that you were dating or went on a date with or spending time with, punched you in the face, you would probably never see that person again. Mm-hmm. You would probably never want to spend time with that person again. But it's those slow pieces that build up, that build up, that have you adjust and adjust and adjust to more and more violence and abuse. Mm -hmm. So you finally going, well, this is just what it is. Where if it had started off like that, you would have never been in that relationship in the first place. Yeah. So let me ask you a couple of, and this is a heavy topic, but you're a good person to talk to about it, seeing as you are a social worker and you're experienced in these domains. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about sexual assault, because, of course, another huge issue that doesn't get talked about enough. I was wondering, first of all, do you do you have any radar on how pervasive sexual assault is? Like, do, do you have any statistics that you may? So there are a variety of statistics out there. So depending on what source you're looking at, it, it, it does vary. Um, oftentimes I'll utilize RAIN, which is the Rape Abuse Incest National Network with their statistics. And the most recent one that I have read is um, one in four women Yeah. report. So in that, and again, that's reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, that the statistic, I believe for men is either one in six or one in seven. And again, yeah. these reported and reported over lifetime. So that is including um, childhood experiences as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at it, the the statistic that the last one I know that has been, that I'm aware of is one in 10 children will experience abuse. Yeah. Uh, those are really high statistics. Um, yeah. is, that is a lot of people. That is a lot of people experience sexual violence. Yeah, absolutely. See, I, I read the same statistics and It was something that, you know, every once in a while, I just have to refresh my memory about these sorts of things when I'm, for example, writing a a book or researching for the podcast or whatever. And it really, it's such a tragic and disturbing wake up call anytime you go back and rediscover those numbers. And it's just like, you know, this one in 10, if you're in a room of 100 people, you know, 10 individuals who have been through that, that's, that's not okay. (laughs) That's pretty, pretty alarming. So I also wanted to ask if someone, um, you know, does experience sexual assault or sexual violence, what should they do? Should they go to police? Should they go to the hospital? What is the best course of action? And again, there isn't. Um, So of pulling it back to what that person needs in that moment. Our bodies are so cool um, that they will do whatever they can to help us survive. And for a lot of people, that is completely dissociating. That is, mm-hmm. 
now, that is completely disconnecting. And that obviously can make things tougher later when we're wanting to work through some of these traumas, if that's something someone chooses to do. But in that moment, that's what your body and brain needed to do to get you through that. So Mm -hmm. if there are options and choices of what to do after, you know, sexual violence has occurred, but we don't have to shame ourselves if that's not what we ended up doing. Yeah. Um, So I'm always hesitant to tell people you have to go to the hospital or you have to go to the police or you have to tell someone. Um, Because with the work that I've done, have people had positive experiences in those situations? Yes, they have. I've also had a lot of people with really negative um, experiences. So Mm -hmm. uh, going to the hospital after sexual violence, after sexual assault, after rape, um, if you do choose to have a forensic exam done, um, which is oftentimes known as a rape kit, um, that is really, really invasive. Um, That is a role that I've had as well of going and sitting with people while they've had exams done. It is long. It is a long process. Um, I don't think I've ever gotten out of the hospital after I, and again, recognizing that I get called to come. So this person has already been there and then I get called to show up. I've never done it in less than four hours. Wow. Um, it is a process in every experience I've had. The forensic examiners, the forensic nurses have been amazing and wonderful. Um, but it is still such an invasive process um, of having pictures taken of your body, of having everything looked at, swabbed. Mm. Prod- it, it's an intense experience. Um, so it is still important that if you need medical care, that obviously that is something that, that you're doing, um, but it can still be intense for a lot of people. Um, a lot of folks too will automatically go and report to the police. Um, and I have had the privilege of working with some detectives who have been so trauma-informed, who have been so wonderful. Um, but I've also had clients who've had really, really horrendous experiences of not being believed, mm-hmm. of being dismissed, um, of the report never actually even being filed. Yeah. For uh, that, they do go through that whole process and it's believed that there's not enough evidence to go forward with the trial. Um, so it, it's it's an intense process. And with the folks that I've worked with, I've also never had any person who has gone through with a sexual assault case um, so that they've been raped, they've gone to the hospital, they've reported it, they've done all the quote unquote right steps, um, that it has taken less than two years for that court process to go through. Mm, yeah. So no simple solution there, just just like everything else in this life, I guess. Speaking of police and um, the way that certain police interact with these individuals who come in and are trying to talk about extremely traumatic stuff. I was watching a, you know, I watch a lot of true crime stuff, unfortunately. It's a, it's a bad habit of mine, but... I was watching a uh, docu-series recently, and they had some clips of women being interviewed by police officers who were trying to report rapes that this individual had been perpetrating. And the watching these women have to sit in these tiny interrogation rooms, right? Like these small rooms in police departments with these, you know, big, intimidating-looking cops, you know? They tend to be pretty big dudes. Just point blank asking with no compassion or respect, where were you? 
what did he look like? How, like, when did this, you know, it just point blank, like throwing that at someone who has just been through what may have been the most traumatizing experience in their life. It's like, why would someone feel comfortable going through that, going through that process that may even be humiliating, that's certainly re-traumatizing. Um, and then, like you just said, potentially nothing happening for as much as two years or even at all. It's, I don't know, man, like these things perplex me a lot. And it is tough. And I think there are lots of training opportunities out there um, for, you know, folks within law enforcement to have that training. However, I, I don't think they often are given the time and space to do that training. Mm -hmm. um, there's a really big cultural piece to it as well of the, idea of what what's the priority I guess you know so the priority isn't to take your time and be patient and listen to this person who's experienced violence um, because the other thing too is that no one is a perfect victim and I think we have this idea in our head of what a perfect victim is supposed to look like mm -hmm. so you know someone who's been sexually assaulted they might be belligerent they might be yeah. they might be mean um they might be actively going through a mental health crisis in that moment um, they might be truly anything that we can think of that puts them in this spot of not being perfect, of not being likable. And people are less likely to want to support someone in that moment, which should not be the case. It should not be what's going on. Um, but, you know, if someone has someone come in and they are screaming at them, they are obviously intoxicated and they're saying, I've been sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it's we see that that there's a lack of compassion in those moments mm -hmm. of, of willingness to be patient and understand what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important. Thank you for mentioning that for sure. So after all this work you've been doing over the last few years, and I, I mean, you've been working in really intense settings with, it sounds like very acute you know, individuals who are going through very acute situations. What has your most important takeaway then so far? Ooh. Oh man, that's a tough one. Um, I think, uh, I know this is going to sound a little like cheesy or cliche, um, but I, I view therapy as an act of love. Otherwise, it's just an exchange of information. Um, so I've been in settings where I have been in within the prison system at the state penitentiary, you know, working through PREA, which is the Prison Rape Elimination Act, um, where someone is handcuffed to a phone through the plexiglass, and that's how we're doing therapy. Mm -hmm. you know, in the hospital with people, you know, after sexual violence, and then, you know, with small children, um, two years old, three years old, that I've done therapy with um, after sexual violence. Um, People in their 90s, you know, you know, all these different experiences and ages who have gone through something horrific and violent that no one should ever go through. Um, but if I'm not loving people in that moment, if I'm not showing up. And, and, and when I say love, I don't mean family love. I don't mean romantic love or sexual love, but this love of, of witnessing another person mm -hmm. who has gone through so much hurt and they just want to be seen and heard. It's amazing. Yeah, that's powerful. Thank you for that. <laughs> 
Yeah, love for your fellow human beings is just so important. And I think we get so disconnected from compassion for others because we live in a society. We live in a society <laughs> where we're we're kind of trained, I think especially men are trained to be very hidebound and stoic about their emotions. I get a lot of people who tell me that me hosting this show is kind of unusual because I happen to be male and it's like I get feedback where people are like, oh, men don't usually talk about these things. And I'm like, well, to me, that's fucking crazy. I think everyone should be talking about this shit. Um, another important takeaway I had from what you just said is that these truly are issues that impact everyone from every socioeconomic background, every age group. And again, just and to use another cliche that I've been using a lot for this latest series of episodes, um, you're never alone. I, I know it sounds so cliche, but you're never alone. And it's important to remember that because that isolation is just absolutely terrible. I wanted to shift gears just a little bit. I absolutely wanted to talk to you about Penn State a bit, uh, just since we have a few minutes left here. And like I said at the beginning of the episode, PSU is where we first met. I was 18. I guess you were 19 at the time, right? Was, yes, my birthday's in October. So when we met, was 18 but very quickly I turned 19. <laughs> yeah you had like just turned 19. I, I do remember that and you were actually one of the first people who I met in our dorm Beaver Hall which interestingly we had another guest on the show who also had lived in Beaver Hall. Oh wow. Yeah during the same I think roughly during the same time we were there but that's a whole other story. <laughs> But I was curious if you if you can even remember what were your first impressions of me when we met? Do you recall? I'm trying to think back. I think, well, so I did summer session, so okay. I think I I felt a little bit more comfortable than mm. most people did. Um, so I think whenever we all met, I was just excited to make friends and, and be friends with people. Um, we also did live on a co-ed floor. So there was some interesting dynamics there. Yeah. Um, I think one of my first memories of you and, you know, some of our other friends uh, was everybody being like, I don't know, maybe 20 of us all shoved into my dorm room. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't even remember what we were talking about, but I think you ended up staying longer and we just kept talking. And then the next thing I remember is you always writing um, on your typewriter and giving me and Casey um, funny plays or scripts that you had written on your typewriter. So <laughs> that is that is my first memory um, that I can think of, of us becoming friends. <laughs> That's amazing. I actually have that typewriter uh, right over there behind me. I, I still have it. And yeah, that was a that was a thing that I used to do. I used to enjoy just banging out like poetry and short vignettes and stuff on, mm -hmm. on the typewriter. And, and sometimes I would put music to it. And I, I was just into weird little projects like that. So that's cool. I do recall, I, I don't necessarily recall the very first time you and I met, but I just remember that I liked your vibe a lot. I was like, oh, this chick's cool. Like the way she carries herself is very like, confident and extroverted and like 
I don't want to say like self-assured, but you, you've just got this like cool bad bitch vibe and I'm into it. <laughs> well, I also had the little faux mohawk then too. So, oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was a lot cooler then. Than Very I punk rock. But I remember too of kind of our college experience. And if this is, you know, feels too intense for us to talk about kind of diverting a little bit. Mm -hmm. as well you know that kind of that freshman year of everybody exploring and finding things and that we stayed friends through our college experience but I know that you would often kind of separate a little bit and then we'd reconnect and it would always be like hey Hunter is everything good you're like yeah and then it would be a disconnect and come back and once I read your book and seeing what you were going through and and I don't mean to make this about me but I felt like wow how did I not know that Hunter was struggling in the ways that he was. Well, that was actually the next topic I was going to bring up. So thank you for segueing into there we that. Go. <laughs> yeah, I, I was almost worried that it would sound too egotistical if I started asking you about that stuff. But um, I part of what I've been doing lately is really trying to reconstruct a lot of those memories because I was, you mentioned like, diversion like diverting away from that core friend group that we had and i think that was a very healthy friend group i think that we had a lot of fun together you know you me lauren etc and you know we would party and stuff but i realized i was like after a couple of months i was like oh i'm really partying super hard like harder than my other friends are and so I started falling into a group of homies who were um, good friends, but also really bad influences. And so I started getting into crazier and crazier stuff. And by the end of that freshman year, I think that I was really starting to alienate a lot of people through my behavior as well. And that became kind of a pattern for the next couple of years. Like you were saying, you know, we had been super close for, you know, the first two semesters. And then I kind of fell off with a different crowd. And then like you and I would happen to have a class together and we would kind of like reconnect. Um, but yeah, it was um it was pretty pretty interesting. I'm working on a new book right now and I've been speaking to people about the Penn State years and the months that immediately ensued, which is when I had a psychotic manic episode. And it's just been really really interesting to kind of get that outside perspective. So I think it's um the fact that you noticed that I was kind of starting to self-isolate like that is actually really interesting to me. Well cuz anytime that we would reconnect and often end up watching um Walker Texas Ranger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and do that that we would just have fun like it would be fun kind of silly stuff that we would hang out and do sometimes you know you would come to some of our parties but other than that we every now and then you give me a little bit of a glimpse of things and I'd be like Hunter I don't I don't know if that's okay yeah. um and kind of anytime I know that I push that a little bit I wouldn't see you for a little bit really and um so I kind of learned to if if I wanted, you know, to keep that friendship going and to be able to check in on you of not really pushing that. Mm. And so I think one of the big things, and I don't know if you remember this, but like once you graduated, 
um, you would call pretty often when you were having, you know, that, that, that cross country trip mm-hmm. and leave some pretty concerning voicemails. Dude. Uh, and okay. I remember being very concerned for your, your well-being and your safety. Um, and I, and I don't say these things to embarrass you or to, to bring those up. Um, but I know it's not silly or funny, but that you would CC me on emails that you would send out for jobs. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. there was one that you got back and you would CC me on all of these. I don't know if you were always aware that you were CCing me them, on them, but no. one of the ones that, you know, it was like kind of almost like a generic rejection back of we've gone along with another candidate. Mm-hmm. Thing back about being stalked by like a mountain lion. Oh, shit. Yeah. And, and that's when I like called you and I was like, Hunter, like, what is going on? And you're like, yeah. I cannot come back across state lines anymore. And I was like, what do you mean? And you said, I'm I'm going to get in trouble. Like I'm being watched. Like I, I can't come across state lines. So what? I actually ended up, and, and you asked me, can he, cause you know, with my dad, with what he does for work, um, mm-hmm. you asked, does he know if anybody's watching me? So I had to tell you, like my dad said, you are not on any watch list. Um, my dad's a federal prosecutor or was at the time um, <laughs> that you are not on anything. You are okay to come back to Virginia. That you wow. Were that. I had completely forgotten that that happened. And that's crazy. I, um, I'm happy to talk about this sort of stuff, though. This fascinates me. Um, I do remember calling a lot. And I remember uh, typically with like you and Lauren, I would leave like VMs, voicemails. I I didn't really I didn't recall leaving such alarming ones, though. In my head at the time, I think that I was just fully convinced that I was under government surveillance. And sometimes these days I kind of think back and I'm like, was I like in my head, am I reconstructing these memories in a way that makes them seem more intense than they actually were? But then I speak with people like you who say exactly what you just said. And it's like, holy shit, that's actually really scary. The The whole thing with being on a watch list, I... I was fully convinced that I had like FBI following me and shit. It, it was really, really distressing. So that kept spiraling out pretty hardcore. And, you know, and ultimately I, I landed in a hospital. Here's something really crazy. This is a very recent development in my life. So earlier this week, I had a session with my therapist and uh, she I, I love her. I, anytime she comes up, I always like to say that I love my therapist because she's awesome. But we were talking and she mentioned something. She was like, I really would have liked to have known you during those days just so I could see like really the true full spectrum of like how you operate. And I was like, what if I found a way to get my medical records from that time frame? So I reached out to a psychiatrist who I briefly worked with and who dropped me after a couple of months because I was completely non-compliant with her treatment. So I emailed her office and I was like, if you happen to still have anything on record, can you please send it to me? Because I would like to have it, you know? 
and I didn't go into any detail about like what it's for or anything, but she responded, which really shocked me. I wasn't expecting them to even respond. And now I've been going back and forth with her office trying to get like her notes from like February 2015 through May 2015. I'm really curious if any of that information still exists. Like it may have been destroyed by this point because it's been over five years. Um, But yeah, like that would be really trippy to go through. Very strange uh, interactions with this psychiatrist, though. She, she's she been sending me very bizarre emails, um, which is, um, yeah, uh, very bizarre emails. She was emailing me at two in the morning last night, um, asking me if I needed medication refills. And I'm so now I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, oh, am I coming across as like, are these more crazy person emails that I'm starting to send? And then I read back through them with one of my friends to kind of like reality check. And we're like, no, this is fine. So anyhow, very strange situation going on there. And I'm, I'm hoping that I can get to the bottom of it. Well, Thank you for bringing that up. That's that's very informative for me and very helpful for me as I continue to write this book. I'm actually right at the part where those uh, delusions and hallucinations started really kicking in. And I've been trying to recall some of those memories. Something that a lot of people, I think, don't realize about psychosis is it can cause like dissociation and gaps in memory. And especially if you're also drinking all the time, it makes putting the past together very confusing. So anyhow, um, (laughs) with all of that said, did you feel like mental health was a big deal at Penn State while we were there? Do you feel like people cared about it? Yes and no. I mean, I think based on kind of the things that I was involved with while at Penn State that I saw that there were lots of people who cared or were lots of involvement with the groups that I was involved in or the internships that I was doing. Um, I think it's not as, it was not as much of a priority um, Mm -hmm. as it would have been. Um, Again, I think that comes back to understaffing (laughs) of, you know, with the mental health facility that was there um, Mm -hmm. that, know, it it could take people, you know, the whole semester to even get in with, you know, a therapist or a counselor. And not that that was the therapist's fault, you know, that's the the staffing concerns and issues there. Um, But I know that 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 was always kind of a tough thing. I think also, um, you know, Penn State and any, and I truly mean any college does not prioritize the safety, you know, of students. Um, Yeah when it comes to their mental health, when it comes to sexual violence or domestic violence, um, that that is often put on a back burner. And drug abuse as well, I would say, you know, quote unquote, study drugs, those are amphetamines and stimulant, you know, Um, a lot of people don't realize how dangerous it is to just casually use those. What resources do you think would be helpful for college students who may be encountering mental health problems? Mm. Well, I think if there is access to therapy, to counselors, if um, whether that's on campus, whether that's at community centers, whether that's through their own health insurance, I think that's always a great place to start. I think also, as long as you feel okay and comfortable with it, of being open about what you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
people of knowing that, like you had said earlier, that people aren't alone when it comes to mental health, when it comes to sexual violence or trauma, um, that it's unfortunately a universal experience for so many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To take things to a lighter note, what is your favorite memory of Penn State? Oh, man. I I don't know. I feel like there is like, honestly, because like so many popped up. Um, I think truly just any time that I was with my friends, um, you know, so whether that, you know, was at a Penn State football game, whether that was us just studying together or being silly, you know, going to a party. I think just um, I, I just enjoyed getting to be so close to so many people that I love and care about pretty much all the time. Uh, that was a yeah. pretty big shock to go from being around your best friends all the time to, oh, man, uh, this is now the real world. And yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're really touching on that sense of community that gets fostered between like-minded friends and everything. And, and that's a really amazing thing. What are you looking forward to in the future? Do you have any goals that you're working toward right now? Well, so right now, so um, the last two years, I've made the transition to being in private practice. And that's been so huge, um, such a big change. Um and there's things that I love about it and things that I miss about being community-based mental health. Um, but my my hope is to honestly continue to do the work that I'm doing. Um, I know it sounds like a strange thing to um, have my ideal type of therapy be intense trauma <laughs> therapy. Um, you know, that my ideal client is someone who has experienced sexual violence or domestic violence or human trafficking. Um, that, that that is the population that I, I love working with. Um, at the same time, would love my job to become obsolete. Um, would love for <laughs> child therapy to not have to exist anymore. Um, down the road, I would um, love to eventually go back and get my doctorate. So right now I have my master's and my general license and then my, my clinical level license as well. Um, but at some point, I would love to just go back and continue to expand um, that space of knowledge. But with my my current caseload, the, the current amount of people I'm seeing I can't see a way to balance uh, doing doing college again <laughs> and, uh, you know, providing the care that I want to provide to my my clients and also keeping a healthy work-life balance. Yeah. Uh, that separation. That's huge, especially in a field where burnout is so common. So how do you separate between like when you're wearing your therapist hat versus when you're just normal Brooke trying to chill? How do you compartmentalize? <laughs> well, I think there's a few different things. I think one, um, I think I talk very different when I'm when I'm being professional, when I'm mm-hmm. doing tell you how many times a client's telling me that I have such a soothing voice or that I speak so calmly when anybody who is close to me um, jokes about how annoying and loud I am. Um, so I think sometimes having a little, and I still bring my personality obviously into the therapy room, um, yeah. but the cadence of how I talk is very different in that setting than in, in my personal life. Um, so I think some of almost these little quirks of being different. Um, that there's, um, some, like there's certain jewelry that I only wear when I'm in the therapy office, um, Mm. or a professional role. So right now I'm wearing one of my bracelets that I only wear when I'm doing therapy related things. Okay. 
that separation for myself, almost this physical, I'm taking this off right now. Yeah, like a tactile, like an actual physical feeling. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's really helpful for me, you know, to separate that out. Um, You know, and I am so grateful and so lucky that I have so many people in my life that I love and care about that I really fill my time outside of therapy and being a therapist with that. Yeah. of, of getting to do things that I just generally enjoy um, and creating a schedule. And I, I know I'm so privileged to be able to create a schedule that really works for me mm-hmm. uh, that I can have that, that healthy balance. So tell my clients, I don't work weekends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> weekends. That is not, I will never do a Saturday appointment. I will never do a Sunday appointment because I need that separation. I need that time. Um, you know, so I also don't do morning appointments. Um, the mm-hmm. earliest well, it's 10 a.m., but I will see people in the evening. So I, I do see people till like seven, um, you know, for a little bit there. I was even seeing people at like 8.30. Nice. Um, so sometimes I would, you know, I scaled that back a little bit now, but mm-hmm. I do offer evening hours, you know, to make up for some of those. But creating a balance and a schedule that that works for me um, has, has been such a huge piece of it. I love evening therapy appointments. Like, I don't know if that's just a me thing, but if it's like... <laughs> If I can schedule it so it's like the final thing that I do that day, it's just perfect. Do you have any projects, social media, or other cool stuff you're working on that you would like to plug? Like, are you writing anything right now? No, no. I think I have almost taken this step back a little bit. Um, I've okay. actually talked a lot with my you know, colleagues, with my family, with my friends of for so long, it was go, go, go. Um, so the what, two weeks after I graduated high school, I went to college. Um, The week after I graduated college, I went to grad school. Um, I started my first job the week I graduated from grad school. I got my license that same week. Um, I then did my 3,000 clinical hours. Oh my gosh. (laughs) For my clinical exam um, and immediately joined a private practice. So it's been the last decade has been yeah nonstop of me always doing the next thing, always doing the next thing. and I've kind of decided, let me just pause for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's important. Because um, you know, I was about to actually then um, right after I got my clinical license, I was putting my applications for uh, my doctorate. And I realized, no, <laughs> I need to, <laughs> I need to Like, hold on a so, second. I'm actually kind of in this phase of intentionally not doing more um, that I, I'm not writing anything. I'm not working on any research. Um, I'm not applying to doctorate programs. I've really kind of put this pause or even, do, I mean, keeping up to date on the trainings that I need to keep up to date. Sure. Um, not starting a new training, you know, program uh, of really kind of pulling it back to just existing and just allowing myself to be right mm-hmm. now. Um has been really huge for my own mental health and, you know, to be able to continue that balance. Do you have any particular self-care things that you do when you are just like, all right, I'm taking this time for me. Like, do you take a bath or like aromatherapy? Things is, and my, my clients who've heard me say this, they laugh about it is lizard time. Um, You just (laughs) lay on the floor. You just lay on the floor like a lizard. Um, (laughs) I'm just <laughs> not that's awesome. Anything. I'm that's just so awesome. 
laying. Um, so I will do that from time to time. If I've had a few tough sessions in a row, I just close my office door and I just lay down, <laughs> lay down for a little bit, five minutes, two minutes, and then get back up and just exist again. Um, but my, my big coping skills are just truly taking time to rest. Mm-hmm. to allow my body to rest. Um, so I have a gravity chair, which is the most amazing thing that I think has ever existed. Um, okay. so you just kind of like let, like it's just like a lawn chair, but you can lay back in it. Yeah. Um, so I'll sit outside when the weather allows for me to and just stare at the trees in my yard, stare at the sky, just kind of lay there and and enjoy that. Um, I'm really big on touch as well. So yeah doing different things. So I'll like rub the inside of my palm, you know, multi, you know, almost like in a self-soothing way, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of taking some body stretches as well. So kind of opening up the chest and kind of curling back in again. Um, forever ago, I um, was doing some training. I am not certified in this, but doing some training in trauma um, sensitive yoga. Um, oh, so okay. doing a lot of those gentle movements um, is really helpful for me. Um, you know, doing those deep breathing exercises, you know, that square breathing, you know, the belly breathing, um, as well as just using our senses of kind of pulling us back, you know, to the here and now, you know, so those five, four, three, two, one, what are five things? What are four things I can touch? What are three things I can hear? Two things I can smell, something I can taste. I'm just really pulling it back. Um, I also have a dog. Um, she's turning 14 this year. Uh, Maybe, um, but, you know, just spending time with her, you know, cuddling her, taking her on walks, seeing her joy and excitement and things, you know, is also just really helpful as well. Yeah, I, I love that you brought up touch because that's something that it sounds so basic, but I've really been practicing that over the last couple of months mm-hmm. as I've been having these more intense moods and stuff. And it's something my therapist recommended to me. She was like, start thinking about the type of clothing you're wearing. Is it comfortable? Is it soft? Does it make you feel relaxed? And then start paying attention to that. Like, are you physically comfortable? Is the way you're sitting comfortable? Do you feel tense or nervous? And if you do, what parts of your body do you feel that anxiety coming from Like physically? It's really interesting once you start getting dialed into it. When I'm doing trauma work with people, that they think immediately we got to talk about every detail of what the trauma is, then we got to dive right into it. And the big part that we pull back is how do we create safety in your own body? How Mm -hmm. do we support and connection in your own body? That what does your body need in this moment? Does it need you to wear something different? (laughs) That if you're wearing something that's constrictive, can we put on something that's soft? Yeah. If you snuck onto the bathroom, yeah. Can you allow yourself to take that break and go? If you're thirsty, can you take a sip of water? <laughs> I think we get so disconnected from our body. And especially when we've gone through trauma, we get even more disconnected from our body. Yeah. So to really be willing to open up and listen, what what might I need right now? And being curious about it too. That mm-hmm. it might, no, I didn't need to change out of my shirt. I, <laughs> I need to get outside right now. You yeah. know, that it, it could be different of what we need in those moments. Yeah, 100%. Well, Brooke, this has been so amazing. Um, You are just so fascinating to talk to. And I love (laughs) that we were able to get you on the schedule for this. I just wanted to ask if you have any like final thoughts or closing statements that you'd like to share. Sure. 
I mean, I think when it comes to, to trauma, when it comes to mental health, I think really pulling in that people aren't alone in it and that this is not something that's shameful. And mm-hmm. so shame, um, embarrassment, guilt gets tied into experiencing mental health, experiencing trauma or violent crime and really challenging that, that this, this is not something that is shameful. This is not something that has to be hidden. Definitely got to end the stigma around these conditions for sure. And that's what we're seeking to accomplish through projects like this, through having expert guests such as yourself on. And I think that we're we're making progress. I, I want to find a way to take it to the next level. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like right now. But I know it'll be coming sooner or later. It's just um, I I like the trajectory that we're on. And uh, again, just thank you so much for your time. Yeah, of course. No, thanks, Hunter. I'm glad to be on today. Trauma is a difficult subject to talk about, but it's important that we have these conversations. I think it's awesome to hear the perspective of a professional in the mental health field when it comes to trauma and treatment. I hope you learned something from Brooke and enjoyed this installment of Bipolar Recorder. Bipolar Recorder is on Twitter at Bipolar Recorder. I am on Twitter at HH Keegan. We've also branched out into Instagram and Mastodon, so you can follow us on those domains as well. The Insta, as the kids call it, so far is mainly photos of my guitars, so if you're into that, check it out. My name is Hunter Keegan. Remember to tell your friends about this show. Hang in there and have a safe day, evening, or night wherever you are. Bipolar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting BipolarRecorder.com. Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.